Hello, boys and girls. It's Landlady Anne Beaker coming to you live from her classroom where she's going to read to you The Landlady by Roald Dahl. So sit back and enjoy. Billy Weaver had traveled down from London on the slow afternoon train with a change at Swindon on the way, and by about the time he had gotten to Bath, it was about nine o'clock in the evening, and the moon was coming out in a clear starry sky over the houses opposite the station entrance. But the air was deadly cold, and the wind was like a flat blade of ice on his cheeks. Excuse me, he said, but is there a fairly cheap hotel not too far from here? Try the Bell and Dragon, the porter answered, pointing down the road. They might take you in. It's about a quarter of a mile on the other side. Billy thanked him and picked up his suitcase and set out to walk along the quarter mile to the Bell and Dragon. He had never been to Bath before, and he didn't know anyone who lived there. But Mr. Greenslade at the head office in London had told him it was a splendid city. Find your own lodgings, he said, and then go along and report to the branch manager as soon as you've gotten yourself settled. Billy was 17 years old. He was wearing a new navy blue overcoat, a new brown tribbly hat, a new brown suit, and he was feeling terribly fine. He walked briskly down the street. He was trying to do everything briskly these days. Briskness, he had decided, was one of the common characteristics of all successful businessmen. The big shots up at the head office were absolutely fantastically brisk all the time. They were amazing. There were no shops on the wide street that he was walking along. Only a line of tall houses on each side, all of them identical. They had porches and pillars and four or five steps going up to their front doors. And it was obvious that once upon a time they had been very swanky residences. But now, even in the darkness, he could see the paint was peeling from the woodwork on their doors and windows, and that the handsome white facades were cracked and blotchy from neglect. Suddenly, and a downstairs window that was brilliantly illuminated by a street lamp not six yards away, Billy caught sight of a printed notice propped up against a glass in one of the upper panes. It said, Bed and Breakfast. There was a vase of yellow chrysanthemums, tall and beautiful, standing underneath the notice. He stopped walking. He moved a bit closer. Green curtains, some sort of velvety material, were hanging down on either side of the window. The chrysanthemums looked wonderful beside them. He went right up and peered through the glass into the room, and the first thing he saw was a bright fire burning in the hearth. On the carpet in front of the fire was a pretty little dachshund curled up asleep with his nose tucked into its belly. The room itself, so far as he could see in the half-darkness, was filled with pleasant furniture. There was a baby grand piano and a big sofa and several plump armchairs, and in one corner he spotted a large parrot in a cage. Animals are usually a good sign in a place like this, Billy told himself, and all in all it looked as though it was a pretty decent house to stay in. It would certainly be more comfortable than the Bell and Dragon. On the other hand, a pub would be more congenial than a boarding house. There would be beer and darts in the evening and a lot of people to talk to, and it would probably be a good bit cheaper, too. He had stayed a couple nights in a pub before, and he had liked it. He had never stayed in a boarding house, and to be perfectly honest, he was a tiny bit frightened of them. The name itself conjured up images of watery cabbage and rapacious landladies and the powerful smell of kippers in the living room. 
After dithering about like this in the cold for two or three minutes, Billy decided to walk on and take a look at the Bell and Dragon before making up his mind. Then he turned to go. And now a strange thing happened to him. He was in the act of stepping back and turning away from the window when all at once his eye was caught and held in the most peculiar manner by the small notice that was there. Bed and breakfast, it said. Bed and breakfast. Bed and breakfast. Bed and breakfast. Each word was like a large black blinking eye staring at him through the glass, holding him, compelling him, forcing him to stay where he was and not walk away from the house. And the next thing he knew, he was actually moving across from the window to the front door of the house, climbing the steps that led up to it and reaching for the bell. He pressed the bell. Far away in the back of the room, he heard it ringing. And then at once, it must have been at once because he hadn't had time to take his finger from the bell. The door swung open and a woman was standing there. Normally, you ring a bell and you have to wait at least a half minute before the door opens. But this dame was like a jack-in-the-box. He pressed the bell and she popped out. It made him jump. She was about 45 or 50 years old and the moment she saw him, she gave him a warm, welcoming smile. Please come in, she said pleasantly. She stepped aside, holding the door wide open, and Billy found himself automatically starting forward into the house. The compulsion, or more accurately, the desire to follow after her into the house was extraordinarily strong. I saw the notice in the window, he said, holding himself back. Yes, I know. I was wondering about a room. It's all ready for you, my dear, she said. She had a round pink face and very gentle blue eyes. I was on my way to the Bell and Dragon, Billy had told her, but the notice in your window just happened to catch my eye. My dear boy, she said, why don't you come in out of the cold? How much do you charge? Five and sixpence a night, including breakfast. It was fantastically cheap. It was less than half of what he had been willing to pay. If that's too much, she added, then perhaps I can reduce it just a tiny bit. Do you do not desire an egg for breakfast? Eggs are terribly expensive at the moment. It would be sixpence less without the egg. Five and sixpence is fine, he answered. I should very much like to stay here. I knew you would. Do come in. She seemed terribly nice. She looked exactly like the mother of one's best school friend, welcoming one into a house to stay for the Christmas holidays. Billy took off his hat and stepped over the threshold. Just hang it there, she said. Let me help you with your coat. There were no other hats or coats in the hallway. There were no umbrellas or walking sticks, nothing. We'll have it all to ourselves, she said, smiling at him over her shoulder, and she led him up the stairs. You see, it isn't very often I have the pleasure of taking a visitor into my little nest. The old girl's slightly dotty, Billy thought to himself, but at five and sixpence a night, who gives a damn about that? I should have thought you'd be simply swamped with applicants, he said politely. Oh, I am, my dear. Of course I am. But the trouble is, you see, I'm inclined to be just a teensy-weensy bit choosy and particular, if you see what I mean. Oh, yes. But I'm always ready. Everything is always ready, day and night, in this house, just on the off chance that an acceptable young gentleman will come along. And it is such a pleasure, my dear, such a very great pleasure, when now and again I open the door and I see someone standing there who's just exactly right. She was halfway up the stairs, and she paused with one hand on the stair rail, turning her head, smiling down at him with pale lips. Like you, she added, her blue eyes traveling slowly all the way the length of Billy's body, to his feet, and then up again. On the first floor landing, she said to him, this floor's mine. 
Then they climbed to the second flight. And this one is yours, she said. Here's your room. I do hope you like it. She took him into a small but charming front bedroom and switched on the lights as she went in. The morning sun comes in right in this window, Mr. Perkins. It is Mr. Perkins, isn't it? No, he said. It's Weaver. Oh, Mr. Weaver, how nice. I put out a water bottle between the sheets to air them out, Mr. Weaver. It's such a comfort to have a hot water bottle between the strange bed's clean sheets. Don't you agree? And you might light the gas fire any time you feel chilly. Thank you, said Billy. Thank you ever so much. He noticed that the bedspread had been taken off the bed and that the bedclothes had been turned neatly back on one side, all ready for someone to get in. I'm so glad you appeared, she said, looking earnestly into his face. I was beginning to get worried. Oh, that's all right, Billy answered brightly. You mustn't worry about me. He put his suitcase on the chair and started to open it. And what about supper, my dear? Did you manage to get anything to eat before you came here? Oh, I'm not a bit hungry, thank you, he said. I'll just go to bed as soon as possible, because tomorrow I've got to get up rather early to report to the office. Very well, then. I'll leave you now so you can unpack. But... Before you go to bed, would you be kind enough to pop into the sitting room on the ground floor and sign the book? Everyone has to do that because it's the law of the land and we don't want to break any of the laws at this stage of the proceedings, do we? She gave him a quick little wave of the hand and went quickly out of the room and closed the door. Now, the fact that the landlady appeared to be slightly off her rocker didn't worry Billy in the least. After all, she was not only harmless, there was no question about that, but she was also quite obviously a kind and generous soul. He guessed that she had probably lost her son in the war or something like that and never gotten over it. So a few minutes later, after unpacking his suitcase and washing his hands, he trotted downstairs to the ground floor and entered the living room. His landlady wasn't there, but the fire was glowing on the hearth, and the little dachshund was still sleeping in front of it. The room was wonderfully warm and cozy. I'm a lucky fellow, he thought, rubbing his hands together. This is a good bit of all right. He found a guest book lying open on the piano, so he took out his pen and wrote down his name and address. There were only two other entries above his on the page, and as one does with guest books, he started to read them. One was a Christopher Mulholland from Cardiff, and the other was Gregory W. Temple from Bristol. That's funny, he thought suddenly. Christopher Mulholland. It rings a bell. Now, where on earth had he heard that rather unusual name before? Was he a schoolboy? No. Was he one of his sister's numerous young men? Perhaps a friend of his father's? No, no, it wasn't one of those. He glanced down again at the book. Christopher Mulholland, 231 Cathedral Road, Cardiff. Gregory W. Temple, 24 Sycamore Drive, Bristol. As a matter of fact, now that he came to think of it, he wasn't almost sure that the second name didn't almost have a familiar ring about it as well. Gregory Temple, he said out loud, searching his memory. Christopher Mulholland, such charming boys, a voice said behind him. He turned and he saw his landlady sailing into the room with a large silver tea tray in front of her. She was holding it well up in front of her, high, as though the tray were a pair of reins on a frisky horse. They sound somehow familiar, he said. They do? How interesting. It's almost as though I've heard the names before. Isn't that strange? Maybe it was in the newspapers. They weren't famous in any sort of way, were they? I mean, cr cricketers or footballers or something like that? Famous, she said, setting the tea tray down on the table in front of her. Oh, no, no, I don't think they were famous. But they were extraordinarily handsome, both of them. I can promise you that. They were tall and young and handsome, my dear, just exactly like you. 
Once more, Billy glanced down at the book. Look here, he said, noticing the dates. The last entry is over two years old. It is? Yes, indeed, and Christopher Mahollins is nearly a year before that, more than three years ago. Dear me, she said, shaking her head and heaving a dainty little sigh. I never would have thought it. How time does fly away from us all, doesn't it, Mr. Wilkins? It's Weaver, said Billy. W-E-A-V-E-R. Oh, of course it is, she cried, sitting on the sofa. How silly of me. I do apologize. It's in one ear and out the other. That's me, Mr. Weaver. You know something, Billy said, something that's really quite extraordinary about all of this. No, dear, I don't. Well, you see, both of these names, Maholland and Temple, I not only seem to remember each of them separately, so to speak, but somehow or another, in some peculiar way, they appear to be sort of connected together, as though they were famous for the same sort of thing, if you see what I mean, like Dempsey and Tooney, for example, or Churchill and Roosevelt. How amusing, she said, but come over here, dear, and sit down beside me on the sofa, and I'll give you a nice cup of tea and a ginger biscuit before you go to bed. You really shouldn't have bothered, Billy said. I didn't mean for you to do anything like that. He stood by the piano, watching her. She fussed about the cups and saucers. He noticed that her hands were small and white and quickly moving with red fingernails. I'm almost positive it was in the newspapers that I saw them, Billy said. I'll think of it in a second. I'm sure I will. There's nothing more tantalizing than a thing which lingers just outside the border of one's memory, and he hated to give it up. Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. Maholland, Christopher Maholland, wasn't that the name of the Eton schoolboy who was on a walking tour throughout the West Country when all of a sudden, milk, she said, and sugar? Yes, please. Then all of a sudden, Eton schoolboy, she said, oh, no, my dear, that can't be possible, because Mr. Maholland was certainly not an Eton schoolboy when he came to me. He was a Cambridge undergraduate. He came to stay, stay with me. Now come sit next to me and warm yourself in front of this lovely fire. Come on, your teas are all ready for you. She patted the empty space beside her on the sofa, and she sat there smiling at Billy and waited for him to come over. He crossed the room slowly and sat down on the edge of the sofa. She placed his teacup on the table in front of him. There we are, she said. How nice and cozy this is, isn't it? Billy started sipping his tea. She did the same. For half a minute or so, neither of them spoke, but Billy knew that she was looking at him. Her body was turned towards him, and he could feel her eyes resting on his face, watching him over the rim of her teacup. Now and again, he caught the whiff of a peculiar smell that seemed to emanate directly from her person. It was not in the least unpleasant, and it reminded him well of... He wasn't quite sure what it reminded him of. Was it pickled walnuts? New leather? Was it the corridor of a hospital? Mr. Maholland was a great one for his tea, she said at a length. Never in my life have I seen anyone drink as much tea as sweet, sweet Mr. Maholland. I suppose he left quite recently, Billy said. He was still puzzling in his head about the two names. He was positive now that he had seen them in the newspaper, in the headlines. Left, she said, arching her brow. My dear boy, he's never left. He's still here. Mr. Temple's also here. They're on the third floor, both of them together. Billy set down his cup slowly on the table, staring at the landlady. She smiled back at him, and she put out one of her white hands and patted him comfortingly on the knee. How old are you, my dear? she asked. Seventeen. Seventeen, she cried. Oh, that's a perfect age. Mr. Maholland was also seventeen, but I think he was a trifle shorter than you are. In fact, I'm sure he was, and his teeth weren't as white. You have the most beautiful teeth, Mr. Weaver. Did you know that? 
They're not as good as they look, Billy said. They've simply got masses of fillings of them in the back. Mr. Temple, of course, was a little older, she said, ignoring his remarks. He was actually 28, and yet I never would have guessed it if he hadn't told me. Never in my whole life. There wasn't a blemish on his body. A what? said Billy. His skin was just like a baby's. There was a pause. Billy picked up his teacup, took another sip of his tea, and then set it down gently on the saucer. He waited for her to say something else, but she seemed to have lapsed into another one of his silences. He sat there staring straight ahead into the far corner of the room, biting his lower lip. That parrot, he said at last. You know something, it had me completely fooled when I first saw it through the window at the street. I could have sworn it was alive. Ah, alas, no longer. It's terribly clever the way it's been done, he said. It doesn't look in the least bit dead. Who did it? I did. You did? Yes, of course, she said. And have you met my little Basil as well? She nodded toward the docks and curled up comfortably in front of the fire. Billy looked at it and suddenly realized that this animal had all the time been just as silent and motionless as the parrot. He put out his hand and touched gently the top of it. The back was hard and cold, and he pushed the hair back with one side with his fingers, and he could see that the skin underneath was a grayish black and dry and perfectly preserved. Goodness gracious me, he said, how absolutely fascinating. He turned away from the dog and stared with deep admiration at the little woman beside him on the sofa. It must be awfully difficult to do a thing like that. Not in the least, she said. I stuff all my little pets when they pass. Will you have another cup of tea? No, thank you, Billy, said the tea tasted faintly bitter almonds, and he didn't much care for it. Did you sign the book? Oh, yes. That's good, because later on, if I happen to forget what you were called... Then I can still always come down here and look it up. I do it almost every day with Mr. Maholland and Mr. Mr. Temple, Billy said. Gregory Temple. Excuse me, um, excuse my asking, but haven't there been any other guests here except them in the last two or three years? Holding her teacup high in one hand, inclining her head slightly to the left, she looked at him out of the corner of her eyes and gave him another gentle little smile. No, my dear, she said. Only you.